This, 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 this is K-U-T. K-U-T. K-U-T, Austin. Stop. This is KUT Weekend for the first weekend of 2018. Thank you for listening. I'm Nathan Bernier with KUT 90.5, the NPR station in Austin, Texas. Here's what we got for you this week. Marijuana dispensaries in Texas concerned about new guidance from the Justice Department. We know we're going to face challenges. We know we're going to face hurdles. We've already faced several of those. Texas's maternal mortality problem is also a data problem. Not having a functional public health system that can report this accurately is a problem in and of itself. And a mysterious set of doors at Austin's new central library. Regular looking glass doors, but if you walked through them, you'd fall at least two floors down. Those stories and more in this edition of KUT Weekend. It will, however, provide healing and hope for children who are afflicted by unrelenting seizures caused by epilepsy. That's Governor Greg Abbott signing into law in 2015 the Texas Compassionate Use Act, one of the most restrictive marijuana laws in the country. It only allows for a non-psychoactive form of medical cannabis oil, which can only be prescribed to people with intractable epilepsy when nothing else is working to stop their seizures. The law was passed in large part because of the emotional testimony before members of the state legislature by parents like Dean Bortel. I'm a disabled veteran, conservative Christian Republican voter, but above all, I'm a father. His daughter Alexis was diagnosed with severe epilepsy, and after one horrific eight-minute seizure one day, they decided to relocate to Colorado to get her medical marijuana. She went 33 days seizure and symptom-free after the first dose. That record was only broken by the flu. Anyone who deals with someone with epilepsy knows illness makes it worse. It would have likely killed her in Texas. God has a plan for Alexis. Parent after parent, patient after patient made pleas like that to the state legislature, and it moved them to authorize a medical marijuana program, even though marijuana remains illegal under federal law. But there are three companies right now in Texas with licenses from the state authorizing them to grow marijuana plants. You have to grow the plants to make the cannabis oil, even if it's non-psychoactive. One of those grow-ups is in Manchaca, just south of Austin. So here's what happened this week. U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions rescinded the Obama-era policy that allowed marijuana to flourish in states across the country. Sessions issued a memo on Thursday saying federal prosecutors should decide on their own whether to devote resources to marijuana cases based on other demands in their districts. Sessions writes in this one-page memo that prosecutors should follow the well-established principles that govern all federal prosecutions by considering the seriousness of the crime and its impact on the community. Right after that announcement came out, I called the CEO of one of these medical cannabis companies in Texas, Morris Denton of Compassionate Cultivation. I called him from the newsroom and I asked him for his reaction. Well, my reaction is, is that, you know, this is something that Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, has kind of been intimating on for months. For those of us that are in this industry, while we had hoped that we wouldn't see this or that this wouldn't happen, the reality is, is that it has. And now we have to understand and parse through what, what it really means. Can you just contextualize for me where you are at with your business? You are one of 
three organizations that got a, a permit from the state? Or are you in production now? Or what's what's kind of going on with your business? Yeah, that's correct. We're one of three to be licensed by the state of Texas as part of the Compassionate Use Program. We earned our final license on October 31 on Halloween, and we planted our first set of crops, our first seeds that day. We are far along in the crop growing mode of our uh, of our first initial set. We'll have our first harvest later this month, and we'll have medicine available late January or early February. I mean, you're a business operating legally in the state of Texas, at least under state law. What kind of uncertainty does this create for investors in in your business and businesses like yours having this kind of uncertainty about what the future holds well i think from an investor's perspective anytime there's potential instability it creates a little bit of concern you know we're fortunate in that our investors are very supportive very educated very informed they understand the the business that we operate the reality, Nathan, is, is that is that we're operating a business with transparency and integrity. That is a, a legal business that's fully licensed by the state of Texas under laws that were written by the state legislature that were signed into law by Governor Abbott in 2015 and where the rules were adopted by the Department of Public Safety. So, you know, from my point of view, there's very little to be concerned about. If I were in your position, I, I would be saying to investors, look, if they're going to crack down, they're probably going to go after the legalization states first, California, Massachusetts. Does that give you any assurance, the fact that you're operating in Texas? Well, I mean, what I think this is really about is more focused on the states where there's a more liberal legalization industry and market that's there. You know, we're not Colorado, we're not California, and while we love and respect and, and have a great deal of, you know, admiration for the work that, that those states and our neighbors to the to the north and the west have done. You know, the reality is, is that we're Texas and, and we're conservative. And this program, the Compassionate Use Program, is a conservative start to a broadening medical cannabis uh, industry. The scientific reality is, is that the medicine works. Um, and that it does have a positive impact on people with intractable epilepsy as well as with other neurological conditions. And so, you know, whether the Trump administration wants to acknowledge science or not is beyond my ability to control. The only thing that I can do is continue to focus on running my business and run my business with integrity as a reflection of the state of Texas. Uh, there are a lot of hopes, and you may be among the people hoping this, that once lawmakers and the public see that uh, this compassionate use program is working, there's no problems, that it might be expanded to include other symptoms and perhaps have a higher THC product available for medical purposes. Are you concerned that a crackdown from the Justice Department could hinder changes in state law? Yeah, I, th I think that the concern is there. We've prepared ourselves and our business for a long haul. We know we're going to face challenges. We know we're going to face hurdles. We've already faced several of those getting from application through provisional into full licensure. So what I can say about the legislature in my conversations with different legislators is, is that where there is science and where there is research-based evidence, then there is support, right? And so as long as we're able to provide that level of input and direction, then I think that rational minds and logical minds and minds that understand the difference between 
fear and uncertainty and, and real science will prevail. That's Morris Denton of Compassionate Cultivation. We reached out to the U.S. Attorney for the Western District of Texas to see if there are plans to prosecute these dispensaries. And we are still waiting to hear back. Texas just got out of its longest cold spell in six years. Starting last Sunday, parts of the state dipped below freezing and stayed there for around three days. Ice caused accidents. Snow brought some delight. But as KUT's Mills Michelle reports, one noticeable outcome was actually something that did not happen. Victor Murphy is the Climate Service Program Manager for the National Weather Service in Fort Worth, so he's a good resource when it comes to freezes like this. The last time, you know, there was an event similar to this was back in February 2nd through 4th of 2011. And like a lot of Texans, he remembers what happened that cold February. If you recall it, during that event, the state electrical grid couldn't handle the demand And, um, you know, the state suffered rolling blackouts. The state didn't get as cold this time around, but electric demand was actually much higher. In fact, it broke a new winter record, says Leslie Sopko. I'm going to give you the unofficial official numbers. She's a spokesperson for the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, the group that manages almost all of the Texas grid. Based on preliminary operations data, um, the current record is now 62,885 megawatts. And that record was set between 7 and 8 o'clock Wednesday morning. But this time, under similar weather conditions and with higher electric demand, there were no blackouts. To figure out why, you've got to remember what caused them the last time. Part of the problem was that equipment and infrastructure at some power plants actually froze, shutting down the plants. So since then, uh, winter weatherization procedures have, um, you know, been modified. And and one of the things that we do is we actually send staff out prior to winter. Um, We send them to spot visit various power plants to make sure that uh, those procedures have been implemented. Another problem ERCOT encountered in 2011 was that some gas plants didn't have sufficient fuel to make up for those plants that froze and went offline. Sopko says ERCOT now coordinates better with gas pipeline companies about fuel supplies. All simple things that may guard against future grid failure in times of high demand. The demand goes up with the more people and businesses that are in the state. But as far as this year goes, the frigid start to the new year doesn't mean we should expect more cold, says Victor Murphy with the National Weather Service. The overall forecast still for the rest of winters to have uh, increased chances for above normal temperatures. He says year by year, things are actually trending warmer. Mose Bushell, KT News. It's been more than a year since national researchers who were looking into maternal mortality rates in the U.S. released a bombshell report that found the rate in Texas had doubled in just two years. Usually that's the kind of statistical jump you see following wars or natural disasters. As a result of that study, those researchers looked specifically into Texas. KUT's Ashley Lopez reports on that study, which came out this week. 
This new study sorted Texas's maternal mortality data into two periods. They looked at women who died while pregnant or shortly after giving birth between the years 2006 to 2010 and between 2011 to 2015. What they found was an 87 percent spike in rates between those two periods. But Marion McDormand, one of the researchers who works at Maryland Population Research Center, says when they looked closer, they found some of that spike could be because of overreporting. I think really this represents, you know, two public health emergencies. One is a sharp increase in the maternal mortality rate in recent years, and two, a lack of reliable data to better characterize and further understand the increase. According to the study, McDormand and others found implausibly high rates of death among women over 40 years old and increasing rates of death from nonspecific causes. McDormand says if you're trying to save lives, this kind of information is just not useful. You don't know if the women are dying because of, you know, hemorrhage after the birth or, you know, opioid addiction or Uh, high blood pressure or, you know, you don't know what's going on. So you can't design a program to prevent those deaths. And researchers also warn that even though some deaths were overreported, that doesn't mean that Texas doesn't have a serious problem. Eugene DeClerc from Boston University School of Public Health also authored the study. So there's two ways you can look at this. You could uh, rationalize it and say, well, we really don't have a problem. It's a data issue. But the fact of the matter is even the most conservative looks at the data from Texas suggest that it's an outlier within the country. And the other fact is simply that um, not having a functional public health system that can report this accurately uh, is a problem in and of itself that needs to be addressed. Both DeClerc and McMormon say the state needs to create a fully staffed review committee and hire someone dedicated to combing through and double-checking death certificate data before it gets to that committee. Dr. Lisa Ollier, who is the chair of the Texas Maternal Mortality and Morbidity Task Force, says she's not surprised by the study and she thinks a review committee in Texas is a great idea. Those reviews can provide a mechanism to review and assess for overreporting and underreporting by determining which deaths are truly maternal deaths. Last year, state lawmakers passed a new law to improve the evaluation of deaths in the state, as well as improve how death certificates are filled out. Lawmakers also set aside money to make sure the maternal death box is checked correctly on death certificates. Olier says both should help make sure Texas has more reliable data in the future. Ashley Lopez, KUT News. Well, I'll call to order this meeting of the Virginia State Board of Elections this morning on January 4th, 2018. In Virginia this week, an election for the state legislature was decided by lottery. The first race was close. There was a recount. The Democrat was declared the winner by one vote. But then another ballot was reexamined and it was declared a tie. A tie election. Identical numbers of votes. So here's how they dealt with it. The Code of Election declares that the State Board of Elections will determine by lot who shall be elected. I'd now like to explain the process that we would use for the drawing. They put two film canisters in a bowl, each one with a different name. Madam Vice Chair, will you give the bowl a stir? Ah. (laughs) Cook in the kitchen. Okay. There you go. As I said, I will draw one canister. The winner will be in the first canister. 
The winner of House District 94 is David Yancey. Virginia Republican David Yancey, the winner of that high-breaking drawing for a House of Delegates seat. And it appears that Republicans will barely hang on to control of that chamber of the Virginia state legislature. But it got us wondering, what if this were to happen in Texas? Would we do it the same way or differently? KUT senior editor Ben Philpott found out, and he's here to talk about it. How are you doing, Ben? Hello. Has there been a tie election in Texas ever, to your knowledge? To my knowledge, no, although uh, people may be quick to say, well, I don't have a lot of knowledge. But no, (laughs) definitely in the last 20 years, there has not been, and I don't recall one beyond that. But it's not outside the realm of possibility. No. I mean, here in Austin, in Travis County, there was an extremely close race in 2010. In the 2010 election, Donna Howard won re-election by... 12 votes. And the challenger did a recount. He then asked the state legislature to intervene and do its own kind of like judicial panel investigating these votes, listening to lawyers, talking to witnesses, all that stuff. By the time that that was all over, Donna Howard won by four votes. Wow. So every vote counts. Every vote absolutely counts. But what if it comes down to an absolute tie? So there are two different rules. Uh, And again, we're just talking about state races. Individual cities and counties may have their own rules on things. Okay. Let's go to like the state legislature, uh, state house, state senate. If there is a tie, the state law says, okay, you have to do an immediate recount. If that immediate recount shows that there is still a tie, a second election has to be held. Within uh, between 20 and 30 days of the uh, recount, declaring it once again a tie, you've got to have a second election. If that second election produces a tie, (laughs) which would be crazy, but if that second election produces a tie, then they draw lots. What does that mean? The official word is claromancy. A form of sorting, casting of lots in which an outcome is determined by means that would normally be considered to produce a random outcome. So basically a lottery. A lottery. You could also roll dice. I mean, you could do anything that produces that random outcome. But yes, putting two names in a hat and drawing one out would be considered casting lots as well. And who does that? The Texas Secretary of State? That would be something through uh, the Texas Secretary of State, I believe, yes. But that's only for, you know, let's say State House or State Senate and some of the other state races. If it's considered an executive office, which include governor, lieutenant governor, comptroller, land commissioner, and attorney general, if one of those ends up in a tie, again, tie, automatically do a recount. But if the vote still comes up tied, the winner of that race is selected by a vote of the state house and the state Senate. All legislators, all 180 of them vote. And whoever gets that vote is immediately seated as the winner. But that, again, would require a tie, another election, and for the second election to be No, tied. no second election. Okay. Just the first one. Just the first one. You can request a recount, but if there's still a tie, then it goes to a vote of the state legislature, 180 people selecting the governor, lieutenant governor, a couple of these other executive offices. Extremely unlikely to happen, but we have a plan in case it does. you got to know what you're going to do just in case it happens. (laughs) KUT Senior Editor Ben Philpott. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. As journalists, our job is to learn. Through interviews and research, we learn about policy, cultural events, and what's going on in our city. KUT's Claire McInerney, who covers education, often reports on learning in Austin schools, and recently she met a kid 
who wants to be a reporter. So she switched gears and did some teaching, and the two reported a story together. I met Truman Hamade the way most great collaborators do, through his publicist. I got a press release a few months ago about a local kid reporter. He was working for Scholastic, that's the book publisher that also sends out a newspaper to classrooms around the country, with stories written by kids. Truman is one of the 44 kids covering stories for them. And I was also the only one from Texas. Right, that's so special. And since I'm kind of in the Austin area, mm-hmm. I have like a good outreach of a lot of news stories, yeah. especially in Texas. Immediately after Scholastic chose him to cover Texas, the biggest news story of 2017 broke, Hurricane Harvey. So I am in Yoakum, Texas, which is about 30 miles north of Victoria, kind of at the edge of where the hurricane is going to hit. Truman and I both covered it for our outlets. I was on the coast interviewing evacuees. He was here in Austin, focusing on relief efforts. His story centered on an Austin-based disaster relief group. I also got to meet, like, there's some kids volunteering there, too. And there's even, like, a 10-year-old that I could kind of relate to, too. We had so much in common already. So I invited him to KUT, and we chatted in a studio. All right, let's try this now. Will you talk into that for me? Hello. All right, good. It's picking you up. Since I cover schools, I figured working with Truman would be a great opportunity to do some reporting from a kid's perspective. We brainstormed some ideas, and I asked him questions I thought might lead to good tape for my story. Truman, the budding reporter, made sure to use the time to his advantage as well. Well, cool. Do you think there's anything else we need to talk about before we start reporting? Well, I was wondering, do you have any tips for me for being a journalist and reporter? How did you enjoy doing interviews? Did you have any questions on that? Well, I'm just wondering about, like, I, I've i worked a lot more on <laughs> eye contact and, like, not stammering because, like, now I yeah. can talk to people. All right, so he's got his body posture down when doing interviews. Another thing he's struggling with? I wasn't too good with deadlines. <laughs> I feel you, Truman. If you're hearing this story during Morning Edition, I finished it late last night. But being a reporter has more complex requirements. You need a strong sense of curiosity. Truman picked up on that pretty quickly. How did you find your love for, like, writing stories and interviewing people who are making changes in the community? My love mainly came from just getting to talk to people different from me and different from the experience of my family and my friends. What about you? What drew you to want to apply for this classic thing? I think it would be great to just meet those people and interview them and write stories about people who are making a change in the community or just doing something exciting. And I think it would be great to just make news by kids for kids. Just in case you're not impressed enough by Truman, he very casually mentioned a high-profile interview he landed for Scholastic. Dan Rather, I get to mm-hmm. interview him. and Wait, really? Yeah, Dan Rather. Wait, when and where? Why? Well, he, he accepted the interview request. I don't know when I'm going to interview him, but I'm pretty excited. I figured the best way to keep my job now that Truman is on the scene was to join forces. For his first radio story, we wanted to focus on a topic we were both interested in. I was already working on a story about when kids should get cell phones. I figured it'd be great to have a kid's perspective on it. We decided to start our reporting in Truman's fifth grade class at Redeemer Lutheran School in North Austin. I brought him a radio kit identical to mine. Do you hear me now? Yeah. Yes, I can. I gave him a crash course in proper microphone technique, making sure to get people on mic. So when you have your shotgun mic, you want to put it... Like if it was at, at, in front of someone's mouth, you move it to the angle a little bit. Oh, yeah. Okay. So they're not like yelling too. Then Truman like led the interviews with his classmates about what electronic devices they have. Could you please tell me your name and spell it for me? Abigail. A B I G A I O. What kind of electronics do you have? I have a Kindle Fire, and we have an older iPad that 
um, was supposed to be used for learning, but it turned into like a game iPad. We also asked about the restrictions they have around those devices. Here's his classmate, Jayden. What rules do you have for those electronics? Um, my parents restrict some stuff in the internet that's inappropriate, and um, uh, no iPad really like really late or electronics really late. With cell phones, iPads, and laptops in most of their homes, I asked clarifying questions. I was quickly outed as old and out of touch. Will someone give me an example? If you wanted to have a friend over to play or have a sleepover, how would you call them? Sometimes I would text them, and then they would ask their moms, and I would ask my mom. We wrapped up the interviews, and before he had to go to music class, Truman and I did a quick debrief about his experience. What were your thoughts on today and like doing your first interviews for radio? Because I know you've done some print stuff. Kind of nervous, but like excited at the same time because like I've listened to KUT a lot, and then like you're actually doing an interview with them. Like one minute you're listening, and then the next year actually doing this stuff. I don't think this will be the last we hear from Truman. His reporter instincts are good, and he's not afraid to go for the big story. Well, you're killing it so far. You're putting yourself out there, meeting lots of people, putting interview requests in for Dan Rather. That's I did, awesome. I did put one in for Hillary Clinton. She wrote a book about like, why she lost the election. Yeah. And I was thinking about asking her a question, like, if, do you think like n- politics is fair to women and everything, just kind of like unbiased questions I could report about. Teaching him about reporting definitely reignited my passion for journalism. And Truman, if you need a producer for that Dan Rather interview, you have my email. Claire McInerney, KUT News. Austin's modest selection of Spanish restaurants grew by one this summer with a new place on South Lamar Boulevard, focusing on boards of cheese and meats and shareable plates, plus a whole bunch more. Austin American statesman restaurant critic Matthew Odom has been there a number of times, and he's here to tell us what he thinks. Hello, Matthew. Hey there, Nathan. Tell me first, what is the restaurant? The restaurant is called El Chiparon. It's on South Lamar, right at Manchac, that kind of dangerous light and intersection right there because of the traffic and the fast cars and the turning and the multiple lanes. And it's in a mixed-use development right there on that corner. And who's behind it? It is a Spanish chef named Pablo Gomez who opened his restaurant earlier this year, about the middle of the year. And the idea was to bring, you know, I, I remember an early press release said a you'd be a kid in a candy store with the amount of tapas and, and small plates. Give me a a broad overview of what kind of food you'll be eating if you go there. So, you know, you might start out with a board of some Spanish cured hams, uh, some Spanish cheeses, which are a nice entry point. And then you've got some smaller plates that are shareable. You might see a beet or a watermelon salad, but a beet and watermelon salad together, uh, which is kind of interesting. There's a great tender octopus dish as well. Arroz negro with squid ink and mussels and scallops, which is pretty nice. And... There's only a couple big plates. There's a, a chicken dish and a, and a strip steak, and that's about it. You know, there's only a little more than a half dozen plates, so the offers aren't very wide-ranging. You know, if you go to Spanish restaurants, you're usually used to a broader range and some more sections from which to choose, and you can kind of mix and match dishes, and it's good to sip over wine. But this has a more limited experience. Of what you ate, did you like the taste? 
I did. I like the Oroz Negro. Uh, I, I really liked the way the octopus was prepared. It was really tender. The steak was nice as well, but it felt more kind of like just a bistro dish with a Spanish accent. Right. Um, I was hoping for some more wide-ranging dishes. The, the whole experience just felt a little hemmed in. And what about the ambiance, the setting, the vibe, the building? You know, I'm not crazy about these mixed-use buildings, but they did a really nice job with the space. There's these white cloud-like pogo stick bar stools that you can sit on, this white marble bar, white or gray, I can't remember. And the lighting is very interesting in that it's warm and honeyed, yet it's not dim. It's fairly elegant space considering uh, where, where it's located. And they have a gin and tonic menu with a variety of gin and tonics. That's right. They have a bunch of specialty gin drinks with house-made tonics. So you might have one that's very herbaceous and even have herbs floating in them or muddled at the bottom. You might have fruitier ones. Some are more vibrant. Some have that more of like a berry bramble quality to them. That's kind of a fun component of the menu. I'm not a huge gin drinker, but, you know, of course, I was willing to go with them on that ride, and, and I enjoyed it. It's The wine list is a little limited, even though it's mostly Spanish, so I'd like to see a, a little more variation on the wine list. But, yeah, the gin and tonics will be a fun thing for anybody going, especially if they win at happy hour, which is when you can get those tapas. Well, back to the tapas. You mentioned El Chiparon when they put out the news release announcing the restaurant. It said you'd be like a kid in a candy store with all of the variety of tapas. Were you? You know, they only actually offer tapas at the bar area and for limited hours. I think it stops at 6.30 or 7. And they only had four when I went. There were blistered peppers and patatas bravas and some olives, and there was one other dish. You know, I wanted more. I wanted some excitement. I wanted to see something different. I wanted something new. I mean, and I don't, whether it's pan con tomate or uh, uni toast or whatever. You know, I, you just wanted some more variety because you go there and, you know, within 15 minutes you've tried them all. So, you know, hopefully I, the place feels like with its limited menu and some similar ingredients popping up around the menu, it feels like they're kind of measured right now in their approach. I don't know if that is a resources situation or if they are trying to adjust their menu to fit the taste of Austin diners, but it was a little disconcerting. I didn't dislike the place. I just wanted more from it. It felt like it had more promise, and, and maybe it will change. You know, I, I ended my review saying that to really stir up the scene, you're going to need a little more passion and muscle, and I hope that Gomez can do that, not just for him and his restaurant, but for the diners of Austin, because I think Spanish cuisine is not widely represented here. We have a couple good places. So I, I'd like to see that, and maybe there's changes in store. Who knows? Off the top of your head, can you name any of your Spanish places you might check out? Bullfight, which is owned by Sean Serquillo of the Parkside Group, is up on Airport Boulevard, would be my favorite Spanish restaurant in town. And then for that wide-ranging experience, you know, we mentioned the big menu, uh, Barlada on South Lamar. Uh, is another option. Okay. Well, the restaurant you're reviewing this week is El Chiparon. You can read Matthew Odom's full review at austin360.com. Matthew Odom is the Statesman's restaurant critic. Good to see you and Happy New Year. Always a pleasure, Nathan. Happy New Year. Austin that's drawing a lot of attention. And there are a couple of doors in that building that are getting some weird looks. Several people asked about them for our AT Explained project. KUT's Audrey McGlinchey investigated. I call them the doors to nowhere. Reddit users call them the death doors. I first 
I think, noticed the doors when I was actually in the lobby here. Katherine Hoffman points six floors above her head. We're standing in the lobby of Austin's new central library. And I looked up and I saw the door and I saw like a little girl reach her hand up to the doorknob and um, pull on it. And I had this moment of panic. I mean, obviously they wouldn't make a door that someone could just fall out of. The library opened downtown in October, and it's pretty beautiful, much more than the public libraries I grew up with. It's got crisscrossing staircases, a restaurant, a roof garden. And off that roof garden are two doors, regular-looking glass doors. But if you walked through them, you'd fall at least two floors down. My question was, what is the point of the doors to nowhere? That's Monty Marion. He and Hoffman both asked about the doors for our AT Explained project, and they had theories. My dad actually works in construction, and I ran through stuff with him, and we thought of everything from maybe it was a spot to, like, winch up furniture, for, but there's no obvious spot to anchor stuff on the ceiling. My th- main uh, theory is that it's some kind of mistake. They had strange ideas, too. Somebody accidentally ordered, had already ordered that glass, and they just kind of were like, well, we'll just, I don't know, deal with it. Then there were the more whimsical theories. The stairs are very Harry Pottery. It's Ron's first time to Hogwarts as well. Now all you've got to do... It's sort of a platform nine and three quarters type situation where us muggles can't get through, but maybe there are others who might just be able to get to a, a wizard section up there. It's walk straight at the wall between platforms nine and ten. Let's do it at a bit of a run. The truth behind the doors is, well, much less magical. That is uh, basically just a maintenance door. John Gillum is the facilities manager for the Austin Public Library. So that we can get our uh, window cleaners uh, through that door and suspend them uh, and lower them down so they can clean the windows uh, below them, the, you know, for the next, uh, the next five floors. Gillum has a key, but he won't open the door for me. All little kids ask me about those doors. And what do you normally say to the kids? You know, I explain maintenance to them because that's something they need to know because most of life is maintenance. They don't know that yet, but they will. And there you have it. One of the most boring facts of life that we spend much of it cleaning explains these doors. We'll live with that. (laughs) But but that's, that's not why the window or the door is up there. My name is Sid Bowen. I'm the managing principal of Shepley Bullfinch. That's one of two architecture firms that worked on the library. And as Bowen tells me, the doors to nowhere began as a matter of aesthetics. For this, we have to first understand the theory behind the building's design. If we had designed this library 15 years ago, um, there would have been a lot more conversation about books and less conversation about people. How Americans use libraries has changed over time. The Pew Research Center has been surveying people about library use since 2012. And what they've found is that people still visit libraries for their traditional purpose. But more and more people are going to libraries to attend classes, lectures, or programs. We really were trying very hard in Austin to create an environment where you could go and connect with other people and have conversations around whether it's literature that's there or ideas that you came with, but to create a venue for that kind of intersection of ideas. Bowen says his firm tried to do that with the library's atrium. It's got multi-directional staircases, bridges, high ceilings, and lots of windows. At each turn, you get a new view of everything around you. It sort of drives you to look different ways for, wow, where am I? And you'll find your friends on another level or, or another side of the atrium. 
So that was really the goal, was to make those connections more serendipitous. Which brings us to the doors. They started as windows to connect people on the roof deck to those inside. And in that part of the roof, as you're walking, in essence, past the great window toward the city, you now can look through either of those windows and see into the the atrium of the the library and, and connect with people who you see in there. But the city wanted the windows to be more functional, so we got doors. So that they can be opened by the person with the key and the glass cleaned. But that's so boring. Come on. When we think of a library, you know, it, it's a place to explore, a place to discover new things, a place to go somewhere else in your mind. And so as I've been reporting the story, I've been referring to these doors as the doors to nowhere. But um, arguably, you know, you could argue they're doors to somewhere if you just kind of open your mind a little bit. Um, so I wanted to ask you where you think these doors go. <laughs> I'm afraid as the architect, I'll tell you it's the roof deck. <laughs> oh, man. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm very li- I'm limited. <laughs> so I turn to people with fewer limits. Addie Johnson. A-D-D-I-E-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. Addie's a fourth grader. I met her one Saturday at the library. You see that door up there? It's kind of strange, right? Yeah. I tried to walk through it when we were up there. I was like, the door's locked, Mom. And she was like, that leads to nowhere, honey. And I was like... Awesome! And she was like, no, that's just scary. Scary or exciting? I wanted to see, Addie, where you would like the door to go. I would probably make it into, like, this huge bakery with free, like, treats, stuff. What kind of treats? Um, probably cake, cupcakes, and cookies. Do you think that can happen one day? Maybe. Others had simpler ideas. Hi, my name is Lainey. I'm nine years old. So where do you think that door goes? I feel like it goes to your imagination. And what's in your imagination? In my imagination, anything can happen. How do you feel when you think about that? I feel happy and like nothing can stop me. Except, of course, a door handle you can't unlock, no matter how hard you pull on it. Audrey McGlinchey, KUT News. That, my friend, is KUT Weekend for the first weekend of 2018. Thank you for listening. Happy New Year. This commercial-free podcast is brought to you by people who support local nonprofit journalism at KUT. If you want, you can become one of them by clicking the Donate button at KUT.org. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast at weekend.kut.org. You can email me questions or comments, Nathan at KUT.org, or just ask me on Twitter. I'm at KUT Nathan. Our theme music is by RAC. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Nathan Bernier with KUT 90.5 at KUT.org.